Welcome to Monmouth Community Christian Church. It's wonderful to join with you today as, as we gather, as we live out our highest calling in, in worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ together as his people. The last time I spoke, we turned our attention to the church in Laodicea, the last church that Jesus addresses in his words to the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. We learned that there was something about the spiritual condition of of the believers in this city that led Jesus to give them a very vivid warning of the, the danger that they faced. Jesus tells them that they are lukewarm. This means that they're not hot and they're not cold. They're just lukewarm. And as a result, Jesus warns them that that if they remain in this, this lukewarm condition, they're in danger. Literally in the Greek it says, they're in danger of him vomiting them out of his mouth. It's as though this lukewarm spiritual condition, neither hot nor cold, it's like stale, three-day-old coffee that somebody left out on the countertop, and it's just awful. You can't take it. You want to spit it out, and in the Greek, it's stronger, vomit out. So let's, let's look at Jesus' words to this church once again. He says, to the, church, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, in the Greek, vomit you out. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. The last time I spoke, we looked carefully at these three spiritual conditions, being on fire for God, being cold in resistance to God, and being lukewarm, bad coffee. Being on fire seems to refer being full of passion and deep devotion and commitment to Jesus Christ. Being cold seems to refer to being opposed to God. Well, why is that better than being lukewarm? We th- last time... I propose that maybe it's because these people who have ice-cold hearts, who are opposed to God like Saul before he became the Apostle Paul, these are people that God loves to work with, people that God loves to encounter like Saul on that road to Damascus and break into their lives and show them they were wrong and call them into relationship with himself. But to be lukewarm... This is to be somebody who lacks enthusiasm in their relationship with Jesus Christ. They lack depth of commitment. They don't reject Jesus like the ice cold person or the young Saul, someone who it's just fun. I think it's fun for God to break into that person's life. And they're not on fire for God. They have not fully surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. They don't fully embrace Jesus 
by surrendering their lives to him, allowing him to be their Lord, the, the guide, the boss of their lives. They're not on fire. They haven't fully embraced Jesus with the depth of love that will lead to zeal and passion in their commitment to him. Today we're going to look at a specific type of lukewarmness that Scripture specifically warns us against that I think is an especially strong temptation for those of us who've been believers for a while. This is the lukewarmness that grows in our hearts when we begin to turn away from the grace at the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the lukewarmness that grows within us when, when we begin to think that we've earned God's favor through our hard work, through our own good behavior, through all the ways we've served in God's kingdom, all those things we've done for God. You could call this the lukewarmness of external legalism. And it leads to the same result that Jesus describes in Revelation 3, being cast out of Jesus' presence. In Matthew 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Instead of doing the will of the Father by believing in the name of Jesus Christ and receiving a relationship with God as a free gift, those whom Jesus turns away, those, or you could say whom he vomits out in Matthew 7, are those who do work for God's kingdom, thinking that, that by doing this, they're, they're earning a place in God's kingdom, when in reality, they do not have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. They have not received this relationship by grace through faith. They aren't ice cold. They don't oppose God's kingdom. And they're not on fire through surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ. They live in this lukewarm state of confidence in the things they do for God. The lukewarmness of external legalism, of trusting our good external works to earn God's favor without allowing God to enter into our lives with His grace and to transform our hearts and lives. Jesus provides a parable in Luke 18 that we're going to look at that gives us a vivid picture of this lukewarmness of external legalism, this lukewarmness of trusting our own good works, all those things that we do for God. In this parable, Jesus describes a deadly and dangerous spiritual condition that if we don't repent of it, will cause Jesus to vomit us out of his mouth and to tell us someday, no matter how much Good stuff we do for his kingdom. I never knew you. I never knew you. This is a parable about two men. One who looked spiritual and perfect 
on the outside as a Pharisee. And the other who betrayed his own people by collecting taxes from them for the Roman Empire. This was someone everyone knew was a sinner. Let's look at Luke 18. Jesus says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Often when we hear this parable of the Pharisee who thanks God that he's not like the tax collector, we respond by thanking God that we're not like this Pharisee. But anytime we find ourselves comparing ourselves to other people, judging them, judging them as spiritually inferior to ourselves, judging ourselves as closer to God than they are because of all the things we do for God, it's likely that we're falling into the very same sin as the Pharisee in our passage for today, the lukewarmness of external legalism, the lukewarmness of thinking that we've earned God's favor because we've just done so much for him. In Luke 18, as we'll see in just a moment, Jesus first shares this parable and then he immediately demonstrates the truth of this parable through his actions. We know that Jesus directed this parable toward a very specific audience, those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Verse 9. In this parable, Jesus tells us of two men who both went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisees devoted themselves to the strict observance of, of Jewish religious practices because they desired to separate themselves from the Greek culture that had swept the Mediterranean region through the conquests of Alexander the Great. This legitimate desire for separation from the paganism around them, though, would sometimes lead to a self-righteousness based on external observance of the law of Moses. They were obeying the law on the outside. This is why we can call it external legalism. 
Like other Pharisees, the one in this parable gave a tenth of all he received to God. But he went further than most Pharisees. Only the the most religious and the, the most pious Pharisees would fast twice a week. And they would usually do this on Mondays and Thursdays. Because Mondays and Thursdays were the big market days in the city of Jerusalem when all the peasants would come in from the countryside and then the fasting Pharisees would walk through the crowds with, with, uh, with white faces and disheveled clothing as a symbol, as a signal to everybody else that they were fasting today. You see, they thought quite highly of their own righteousness and they made sure everyone else did as well. And all these peasants were so impressed. Oh, look at the fasting Pharisees. They are so spiritual. They do so much for God. History records one such person as saying this, if there are only two righteous men in the world, I and my son are these two. If there is only one, I am he. The Pharisee in Jesus' parable today fit this description. And so so he stood in the temple courts and he prayed most likely out loud so that everyone could hear his prayer. The Greek at this point can actually be translated as saying that the Pharisee began to pray to himself. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. This Pharisee believed that it was his personal sacrifice, his devotion, that ensured God's favor for him. One writer describes the scene in this way. The Pharisee did not really go to the temple to pray. He went to inform God how good he was. Here in this Pharisee, we find the great mistake that most of us will be tempted to make at some point in our relationship with God. And this is the mistake of thinking that we can work our way up to God through our own good deeds, through our own devotion, through all those sacrifices that we make for God or for other people. This mistake leads to the lukewarmness bad coffee of external legalism that Jesus just cannot stand. A number of years ago, I had a conversation with a Hindu monk who lives in a monastery just outside of Princeton. Bonnie was taking a class on Hinduism and needed to visit this monastery as part of her research, so I accompanied her there. And while we were at this Hindu monastery, a monk began to share with us his view that many religious paths lead to God, that all religions are ultimately one. He went on to tell us that he spends a great deal of time doing various rituals to purify himself from sin. He used the word sin. He purifies himself from sin so that he can escape the cycle of death and rebirth that Hindus believe in so that he can someday reach nirvana or moksha, spiritual freedom. I then began to share the gospel with him. 
I explained that we are all hopelessly sinful, that we're unable to climb up to God through self-purification. And rather than demanding that we ascend to him, God chooses in Jesus Christ to descend to us in order to make a way for us to have a, a relationship with himself. And Jesus does this by bearing the guilt of our sin, dying the death we deserve. And at this point, the monk stopped me. And the monk said this, that's the problem with the world. That's the problem with the world. This monk who's trying to earn his way to nirvana, who's confident of his own abilities to climb up a ladder of good works to spiritual freedom, this monk is offended by the grace at the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To him, grace which is the free gift of a relationship with God through Jesus that we do not deserve and that none of us could ever earn. This grace offends his entire religious system because his religious system is one in which everybody gets exactly what they deserve and in which free grace is nowhere to be found. As I began to share the gospel and set forth what scripture says, it suddenly became very clear to this monk that not all paths lead to the same place, that not all religions can be melted together. There's something unique about the Christian faith that sets it apart from every other religious system on earth. And that is grace. The grace that we see in God's choice to come down to us in Jesus Christ because we could not climb up to him. God gives us something immeasurably good that we could never earn, that we do not deserve by coming to earth in Jesus Christ, by opening the way for us to be forgiven, making it possible for us to have a relationship with himself. The second man in this parable could not have been more different. Rather than being a member of the religious elite, he was regarded as a traitor by his own people because he was a tax collector. This means he was somebody who aided the Roman forces who occupied the land, the enemies, and he then took money away from his own people and he gave the money to their enemies. By any measure, tax collectors were traitors. They were outcasts. And this tax collector knew his sin. He felt his shame. Jesus tells us that he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, most English translations miss the full weight of his words because in the Greek, he actually prays, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. As if he were not just one sinner among many, 
but he was the sinner, the greatest of them all. The one whose deepest identity is shaped by his shortcoming before God. Now at this point, the audience Jesus is speaking to, the people around him, would have most likely thought that it's a very good thing that this awful tax collector is finally realizing what a terrible person he is because his situation is hopeless. He's done too many wrong things. He's committed too much theft against his own people. There's no way he could ever make up for all the sin he has committed. He can never be made right with God. The people surely must have been thinking. The Pharisee is the example of flawless righteousness. The tax collector is the example of hopeless sinfulness. That Jesus shocks us all by saying next, I tell you the, the truth that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, this guy, the traitor, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. God loves God loves a humble, repentant heart. And in this, we find a pearl of wisdom that will open for us the doors of God's grace. We must recognize our unworthiness to enter into fellowship with God. All of us. The tax collector was keenly aware that he did not measure up to the standard of God's perfect righteousness, that he did not deserve even to approach God, let alone to receive God's mercy. And it's precisely because he recognizes his hopeless, sinful condition, his, his desperate need for God, that God just pours out his grace upon him. God has mercy on him. So often we're tempted by the prevailing culture around us to believe that there's nothing really that wrong with us, that we're basically good people, that we deserve complete love, complete acceptance. We just, our culture tells us, you just deserve that. Yet the Bible teaches us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is the word the Bible uses to refer to our actions and our attitudes that violate God's perfect righteousness, that tear a deep chasm between us and God, separating us from God's love and God's life. We all have sinned, for we all have failed to live consistently with God's righteousness. And when we begin to doubt this fact then it's very likely that we're beginning to compare ourselves to other people as the Pharisee compared himself to the tax collector rather than comparing ourselves to God's perfect standard of righteousness. The Scottish preacher William Barclay tells a story of something he once observed as he was traveling by, by train. <clears throat> 
When he had passed through a certain part of England, he saw a little whitewashed cottage that seemed to shine with almost a radiant brightness. A few days later, though, he was returning to Scotland after a recent snowfall, and he writes this, We came again to that little white cottage, but this time its brightness seemed drab and soiled and almost gray in comparison with the brilliant gleam of the freshly fallen snow. Barclay then writes, It all depends what we compare ourselves with. And when we set our lives beside the life of Jesus and beside the holiness of God, all that is left to say is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The Pharisee who seemed assured of God's favor because of his outward rituals, his external religious acts, his many acts of service in God's kingdom, this Pharisee did not actually receive God's favor. The Pharisee's mistake of thinking he could work his way to God actually prevents him from receiving God's forgiveness for his prideful, self-satisfied heart. The tax collector, though, understood the wisdom that unlocks the doors of God's grace, which is the recognition of our unworthiness total, complete unworthiness to enter the presence of our holy God. There's one last piece of the puzzle of grace, though, which we find in the verses immediately following this parable, where Jesus demonstrates through his actions the truth of the words that he has just proclaimed. We read in Luke 18, immediately after this parable, the following, the people were bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. It was common in that day for parents to ask a respected rabbi to bless their child on his or her first birthday. And it's likely that that is what was happening here. These mothers who brought their babies to Jesus to have him touch them were, were seeking a blessing from Jesus. Uh, they, they, were, they believed that Jesus could give them a special blessing and they were right. Can you imagine how wonderful it would be to have Jesus bless your baby during his earthly ministry? The disciples, though, wanted to shield Jesus from what they thought was a senseless intrusion. And, and, and so they rebuked them. They, don't, they rebuked the mothers. They didn't understand how little children could have anything to do with the important matters that occupied their master, their teacher, so they turn the mothers away. Jesus, though, understands that children are at the very center, the very center of God's kingdom, and that all of us must receive God's kingdom like a little child or else we'll never enter it. I think we as adults sometimes have hang-ups with gifts. I think it's because... 
We, we want to earn everything we're given. We don't want to receive something and then feel indebted to someone else. And so even when we're given a gift, we think, okay, what can be something of similar value that I can give them someday? We have trouble freely receiving, but children don't have these hang-ups. They freely receive all the time. In fact, everything that a child has was given to them as a free gift of grace. Something that they have not personally earned or worked for. Jesus teaches us just a few verses after the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the underlined words on the screen, that anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Children provide a model for how we must enter into a relationship with God or miss it entirely And the way we enter this relationship is by receiving it as a free gift that I cannot earn, you cannot earn, we do not deserve. In Christ's teaching at this point, we find the key for interpreting the parable of the Pharisee, the tax collector. It's not that God necessarily prefers the company of great sinners over those who've lived more respectable lives. That's... That's not it. Rather, it's that God requires each of us to acknowledge that his gift of of salvation is something that our respectable activities, the things we do for other people, even our service in his kingdom, can never, ever earn. All of us, no matter who we are, must appeal only to God's mercy. Ask God to forgive our sins. And then we must receive this gift of his kingdom as a miracle of grace. When we do so, we will then be ready to extend God's grace and mercy to other people around us. Without understanding salvation as a free gift given to us by God that we do not deserve and could never earn, we find ourselves standing outside of God's kingdom next to a Pharisee who was very impressed by his own devotion and his service and his external behavior, but who did not know that a relationship with God can only be entered into by grace. And when we have forgotten what it means to receive God's grace, it will be impossible for us to extend God's grace to other people. Today, may our eyes be open to see that God makes a way for us to have a relationship with Him, not because we have done enough for Him, but because He's a God of grace who offers us immeasurably more than we deserve simply because of his great mercy and love extended to us in Jesus Christ. And I'd like to close today with a story of grace as told by Brennan Manning in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. Fiorella LaGuardia served as New York City's mayor during the Great Depression and World War II. Manning tells us that his nickname was the Little Flower 
because he was only five foot four and always wore a carnation in his lapel. Manning goes on to write, and I quote, He was a colorful character who used to ride the New York City fire trucks, raid illegal saloons with the police department, take entire orphanages to baseball games, and whenever the New York newspapers were on strike, he would go on the radio and read the Sunday comics to the kids. One bitterly cold night in January 1935, the mayor turned up at a night court that served the poorest ward of the city. LaGuardia dismissed the judge for the evening and took over the bench himself. Within a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before him, charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She told LaGuardia that her daughter's husband had deserted her. Her daughter was sick and her two grandchildren were starving. But the shopkeeper from whom the bread was stolen refused to drop the charges. It's a bad neighborhood, Your Honor, the man told the mayor. She's got to be punished to teach other people around here a lesson. LaGuardia sighed. He turned to the woman and said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. Ten dollars or ten days in jail. But even as he pronounced the sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his pocket. He extracted a bill and tossed it into his hat, saying, here's the $10 fine, which I now remit. And furthermore, I'm going to fine everybody in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant, the old woman. So the following day, the New York City newspapers reported that $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. 50 cents of that amount being contributed by the red-faced grocery store owner while some 70 petty criminals, people with traffic violations, and New York City policemen, each of whom had just paid 50 cents for the privilege of doing so, gave the mayor a standing ovation. The miracle of grace. The miracle of receiving something immeasurably good that we do not deserve, that we could never earn. Today, God offers His grace and His mercy to every humble and repentant heart who is willing to turn to Him and receive the free gift of eternal life, love, joy, hope, and peace through Jesus Christ. May we each have a humble sinner's heart that recognizes and receives this miracle of grace today. Let's pray. Just the fact, Almighty God, that we can come into your presence now and pray and communicate with you is a miracle of grace that we do not deserve. 
And I pray, Lord, that today each one of us would recognize how we completely do not deserve you, how we completely had broken our relationship with you, but that you have overcome the chasm, you have overcome the separation, you have drawn near to us through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if any one of us is struggling with this lukewarmness of the Pharisee of external legalism, that you'd open our eyes. Give us the gift of repentance, the gift of a sinner's faith, so that we can turn to you and in a fresh way receive your mercy and thereby extend it to others. We pray, Lord, in your name. Amen.